right, well, good morning. Uh, the kids can head on over to uh, school, um, and I believe um, ZNA, you got the nursery, right? Yes, no, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, um, our nursery is now open today, so that is awesome. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Jason, and I am the worship production leader here at Crosswinds Church. Um, and I want to let you know whether you are Republican or a Democrat, gay, straight, young, old, black, or white, or whether you're weird like Jeremy and you think peanut butter goes on a pizza, that you're going to find love here. Um, so let's go ahead and let's read from God's word today from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this world, we build our buildings on something that many of us have heard, but few have seen, the foundation. Thing is, we barely ever see it because we build those fancy buildings right on top of them. Today, I want us to take a look at a theological foundation, something that is so fundamental to living a life in Christ that if we don't build upon it, everything will only come crashing down. Now I'll warn you before we even begin that what we're going to hear today is going to start off as something that's not easy to hear. It's especially hard to hear if you're not accepting of who Christ was. So get comfortable because what God has Paul write in Ephesians chapter 2 is hugely important in these first 10 verses. Paul writes in the first verse of Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now those are some tough words to hear. You were dead. Those first four words are powerful. And did you hear it? You were dead. And this just wasn't just symbolism either. Oh no. The Greek word that's used here is nekros, which means corpse. That means you have no pulse of life, no true breath in your lungs, and no clear understanding of thought. Paul's not just saying this about part of the world, though. He's reminding us of who every single person on this earth either is or was. You were dead. You know, you may be thinking, no, I'm not dead. I'm right here, breathing and alive. Paul's talking about a state of spiritual death, though, not a physical one. 
and spiritual death is far worse. This death comes from choosing to identify in transgressions and sins. The word sin, of course, literally means to miss the mark. Being an archer myself, I know this term very well in the form of archery. After all, you stand, you put your bow in your arrow, you lift it up, draw that string back, look down the shaft of the arrow at the bullseye that you're trying to hit, release, and despite your best efforts, it goes wide to the left, and you miss the bullseye. Or even worse, you miss the target completely. But that's the wonderful thing about the use of the word sin. It acknowledges that maybe you did try. It, you know, that maybe your intentions were pure. But something happened in the process of you shooting that arrow that led you away from that bullseye, away from what you were trying to hit. If you're hunting for food and skins to keep your family fed and warm, that may lead to an animal bleeding and suffering until it dies instead of a swift death that you had intended. You miss the mark. It's like someone deciding, I'm going to go and help the orphans. So they do. They raise funds, they gather supplies, and they build these great orphanages where it's needed. But then the media comes in, and they start interviewing, and now they start asking personal questions. What got you involved in helping these orphans? Instead of it being about helping the orphans in the first place, it now becomes about the person who did the helping. You missed the mark. Now, transgressions, that's worse. I put that in quotes because to us, with our limited understanding, it makes sense that it's worse. A transgression is done willfully. It is something you either do or say that hurts someone. This might be like seeing a no smoking sign because there's people with breathing problems nearby and deciding to smoke anyway. Or maybe you know that somebody made a mistake. Maybe that they cheated on their girlfriend. Or someone accidentally input the numbers into a document, and it's going to cost your company thousands of dollars because of it. Instead of keeping it to the people that should know about it, the girlfriend that got cheated on, the boss who could fix the mistake, you decide to start telling other people about it. Maybe you tell your friend Joe about how Johnny cheated on Mary and how he's so despicable for doing it. You tell Sharon in accounting how Randall is such an idiot for making a mistake. You willfully made a choice that you know could damage yourself or somebody else, either physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. But why isn't that worse, you might ask? After all, Mr. and Mrs. Smith they just took a little more credit, whereas poor Randall and poor Joe can't fix their mistakes and learn and grow because their reputations are now damaged. They obviously were hurt by that. That's because God does not have a hierarchy of sin. God doesn't sit there with scales in hand weighing out which sin is worse than another. Instead, God lets us know through Paul's writings in verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians that what we are all doing is we are following in the prince of the air, a title that Satan is proud to wear. So verses 2 and 3 say that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all were rebellious towards God, people who followed in the passions of both flesh and mind, people who followed their lusts, whether they be sexual in nature, like porn, adultery, or rape, physical, like theft, bullying, or murder, emotional in nature, like jealousy, self-loathing, or rage, or mental in nature, like feeling superior to others. It doesn't matter what it was. We're given the answer right at the start. You were dead. All of these things lead to one place and one place alone, death. If you make the conscious decision, decision to identify in your sin and let that define who you are, then you're dead. Worse yet, you're a slave to the devil who works in this world without any care for you or your well-being. And you're not getting out of that death just because you do some good deeds to try and counterbalance it. Remember God in the scales? He doesn't have scales that tell us that this good deed is better than this other good deed either. Nor does he have scales that this good deed outweighs this bad deed. That's just false teaching. If he had those scales, then he would essentially just be the Egyptian god Anubis, who weighs the sins of your heart against a feather. It's an impossible standard. Because that's the standard that you had to live by in order to get a chance at an afterlife in Egyptian mythology. And God knows it's such an impossible standard that he gives us a powerful lesson here. There's no escape through this world. There's nothing you can go out and physically do to escape being a corpse, to escape being a slave, to escape death. Is anyone else out there a little shaken by this? I know I am. But that's a good thing. It means you're listening. These first three verses, they're meant to shake us. And if they don't, ask yourself, why? because this is a clear sign of what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't be dead. We should be alive. We shouldn't build the foundation of ourselves on what the enemy tells us is right in this world. Our foundation should not come from the course of this world. Our foundation needs to come from somewhere else, from someone who has the power to give us life. Someone whose love can resurrect and revive us into a life that's so beautiful, it's almost hard to believe. In fact, that love, if scales really did exist, would be weighed against the sin of humanity. All of it. Throughout all time and all space. And all that sin would not be able to move the scales one micrometer in their favor. God has a love so powerful that Paul needs the next four verses just to try, to try to describe it. Let's look at the first two in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, this is where Paul really begins describing the love of God. But what is love, really? Is it an emotion? Is it a noun, an adjective, a verb? It, really, none of these things. 
Love is an action. Love is something you do and then you feel. Most importantly, love is a choice. You need to keep choosing to act on your love so that it doesn't fade away. So what does this mean to us and what we just read? Well, it means one of the biggest buts in the Bible. A but that is so big that it transcends all of our conscious understanding. You see, God constantly and for all eternity chooses us. He chooses to love us and to nurture us and to spread all of his mercies onto us. There's so many places that we can see this. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then again in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is such a mercy, isn't it? That God would prevent us from perishing by taking that spot for us on the cross. But what is mercy exactly? And why does Paul mention that God is rich in it? How many of us in this room could actually define mercy off the top of their head? I mean, I have because I've been researching it. But um, well, here, Paul uses the Greek word elios, which means an uncertain affinity or compassion. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? Uncertain affinity? But that's the beauty of it. Uncertainty. None of us can be certain of the love and affinity that God has for us because it's literally incomprehensible. No one can do it because no one can truly grasp something that is infinite. You can't see it. You can't hold it. And you certainly can't measure it. That's why Paul keeps going. Using the Greek word agape for great love. Agape means a love that is so rich and so deep that it is completely selfless. It demands nothing in return. It is a love without conditions. You see, God loves us so much that he voluntarily gives to us his love freely with kindness and tolerance in his ultimate judgment. This is the basis for grace. So what in the world is grace? Again, I just love the Greek here. The Greek word charis means goodwill or loving kindness. Now, in English, the word grace is defined as courteous goodwill. Grace is such a beautiful word, quite possibly the most beautiful. For you see, God is the one who gives us grace. He gives us his courteous and goodwill, a loving kindness that is so powerful that it literally saves us from death. By grace, you have been saved. This sentence was so important, Paul had to interrupt the sentence he was writing to make sure that the words that God was putting on his heart would not be forgotten. Who among any of us can say that we have deserved God's grace? That we have deserved to be forgiven by him? We're all sinners, each and every one of us. Sure, there may be some days where we're free uh, from committing any sins or trespasses, but those days are rare. They're not the norm. Each and every one of us will miss that mark. And then God, every single day, comes up to us and goes, 
I forgive you. He gives us a new mercy each and every day. He doesn't say, oh, today I'm forgiving you because you gave money to charity last week. No, not at all. Nor does he say, I'm going to forgive you today, but you're going to have to do this task in the future to earn it. Nope, no way, no how. God's grace is not earned, nor is it loaned to us with an expectation of paying it off. God's grace and mercy are given freely. Not a single one of us could have ever hoped to earn it. None of us could ever hope to pay it back. And no person alive is ever truly going to be deserving of it. That is the love of our God. He doesn't give us his grace and mercy based on merit. Why? Because God already went and did the work for us. God paid the ultimate price for that grace. And yet he gives it to us freely. And what is it that saves us? Grace. God's grace. And then in saving us, God makes us alive. Listen to this one more time. You were dead. Were. Past tense. Because guess what? God has now made you alive through Christ Jesus. Now, fresh new breath has been breathed into you by the Lord. He does this to us twice, you know. First, when each of us is being made and molded, God gives us the first breath of life, the breath of the earth. That first breath of life God gives us, it only works on our bodies. But God, in his rich mercies and with the immeasurable love that he has for us, has a second breath just waiting for us. And let me tell you, if you haven't accepted God into your life, I can tell you exactly where he is. He is right there with you. Right now, wherever you are, whether you're in this room with us or you're at home or in your car listening, God is with you. He's holding out this gift of a second breath of life, the breath of eternal life. His heart yearns to give every single person in this world this amazing gift. You can refuse this gift hundreds of thousands of times and God will keep chasing you with that gift because none of us will ever know if the next second will be our last. So God stays there with you, pleading for you to take that gift before it is too late. He will never leave your side and he will be there with you when you finally turn towards him instead of away from him to accept that gift. And that day is a beautiful one because it is God who makes us alive in Christ and breathes the breath of eternal life into us. And I pray there are people out there today that will get to experience that new breath of life. Paul describes all of that in the second half of the first, the four verses that I've been explaining. Ephesians uh, chapter two, verses six and seven says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of benefit to going back and reading this in the original Greek. Sinegero kaisikathizo enho eparanio. Now I'm about to feel like Gus Portocalis, the dad in my big fat Greek wedding. 
raise us up with him come from the Greek synegero, which means to rouse or wake from death in company with. Seated us with him come from the Greek sikathizo, which means to give us seat in company with. And heavenly places come from the Greek aporanios, which means celestial or heavenly. So, synegero, kathizo, and aporanios mean to go be with someone who is dead, wake them up, then bring them up into heaven to share a seat with you. There you go. <laughs> the imagery here, it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? God has come down into your grace with into your grave with you. He's there in your company, sharing that grave with you. Then he picks you up, rouses you from that death, he restores your body from whatever state it was in, and then he holds your hands and brings you up to be with Christ in heaven. He secures your spot in, uh, with Christ in heaven before you have even breathed your last breath. Not only that, he's giving you a seat at the table. There's a really big piece of cultural context I want to point out here. This was written in an era where furniture was not the norm. Even rabbis would usually sit on a pile of cushions when they talked. Or like Jesus, on some big rock or a boat in the water. And everyone else would sit at his feet, listening. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, Jesus is seating us with him. Where is Jesus, though? Right there at the right hand of the Father in a throne. It's a wonderful seat. He's giving us a great chair, giving us a great honor to be seated there with him up in heaven. We don't need to sit on the floor because he wants us there with him. He wants us to have a place of honor. In Luke 14, Jesus teaches us, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Well, my brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us that very thing. He calls us friend. And then sits with us in his company, asking us to be there with us in a place of honor with him. This is Jesus giving us a completely new position, entirely with a great transformation. He takes us from our position of death, and through himself transforms us into our new position in life. Paul is eventually going to circle back on this point later in this chapter in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Even if you took what Paul wrote in the ancient Greek and used the modern translation of it, it's just as beautiful. It translates to, I wake up and settle down in my futures. Wow. It's the same, isn't it? Just reworded. You were roused or woken up from your death, given a seat so you can settle down into your future. And where is that seat? In the heavenly places. It's a truly wonderful future. It's a future of eternal life in a kingdom where there are many rooms and mansions. 
it's nowhere near the description of heaven that's given to us by modern media either. The boring white cloud where you get to play a harp in solitude and that's it. Not so. We sure won't be alone because Jesus will be there drinking with us and rejoicing with us. Think back to when we had communion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29 says it clear as day. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Look throughout the whole Bible, and you'll start to see that God describes heaven in beautiful ways. And they're clear contrast to how media has tried to portray it. And you know, there's really no way to deny that God can indeed wake us up to settle into our future. He's shown us that throughout the whole Bible. Go back to Genesis and Exodus. You'll see God being there with everyone. And he never did leave it with us either. Fast forward to Daniel chapter 3. Three people are cast into a fire that was heated up seven times hotter than it normally was. And all of a sudden, a fourth figure is going to appear and keep those men safe. So he's definitely there among us in company. Now, rousing us from the dead might seem like a harder task. But there's three very prominent examples of the Bible of that as well. In Luke 8, we see Jesus go to Capernaum. And while he's there, he raises the daughter of Jairus from death. Okay, now, yes, this woman was dead for all of, like, 35 seconds. But we can also look not further into the Bible, but just a chapter earlier in Luke 7. Jesus is in Nain, and there's a funeral procession. Now, this person has definitely died. They've got the wrappings on him, and they need to get the body up to its grave before it starts to rot. But Jesus goes up and touches the casket, and people stop and stare. So Jesus tells the young man in the casket to get up, and he does. Okay, all right, I get it. Jesus is pretty darn good at reviving those who have a whole body and haven't been dead for very long. Go deeper, though. John chapter 11. Jesus is going to walk up to a tomb that has a rotten body in it, and he's going to call out, Lazarus! And there, in front of many, Lazarus is going to come out of that tomb, wrapped up in his funeral wrappings, and he lives again. God has the ability to revive us from any death. That includes the worst, worst death of them all, the death of the spirit. Yes, God has the ability to save us from that death too. And not only can he, he wants to. Listen to verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is unable to fully write down how much God loves us. It's immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That's beyond reckoning. It's beyond comprehension. Brothers and sisters, all of the languages of humanity could come together to pool all of our resources. And even then, we would still only be able to truly, or we would still not be able to truly describe how much God loves us. You could combine the Arabic word shagha, which is a brightly burning and intense love, 
with the Greek word agape and the Tamil word kaikilai, which means a love that is not reciprocated by the other person. And you still only scratch the surface of how much God loves us. That's how immeasurable and great that God's love is. The only way to understand God's love is to truly feel it and open yourself up to it. Has anyone here ever felt God's love before? Show of hands. Awesome. That's amazing. It's through what Paul writes next in the first part of verse 8 that we unlock the key to being able to feel that love. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Man, what a sentence. When you read through Ephesians and most of Paul's other letters, sometimes you can get out of breath with how long Paul's sentences are. Seriously, Paul needs to have a grammar teacher with a red pen or maybe a ruler next to him so he puts in some periods. But this, Paul really slams home the point of everything. It's so incredibly short that it almost makes your head whip around going, where's the run-on sentence? This is quite possibly not only the most clear and concise sentence in Ephesians, but it may be one of the most important sentences in the whole Bible. The impact behind this sentence is huge. It's how we can finally understand God's love by embracing his grace through faith. We finally get to feel that love. By feeling it, we can understand it, and understand it, we are given eternal life. Hallelujah! Now that is something we can rejoice over. And Paul really puts it all into perspective here by telling us exactly how to become saved from spiritual death. By faith, by believing in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. This isn't even the first time we've heard this either. Moses in Exodus has it written down for him twice on the tablets that God wrote for him. Then Moses writes it down in both Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 and 3 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 6 and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me. Four times this exact phrasing is written down. Twice by God, twice by Moses. It's not going to be the last time it's said, though. The phrase is repeated, though not in its exact, uh, exactness, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Guess who else says these words? Jesus. Right in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. God has been spelling it out for us in no uncertain terms. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Period. That's it. Done. That's how you get the gift of life. That's how you receive God's grace. Through faith. Now, God's not done speaking through Paul. Oh, not by a long shot. He has more for us. The rest of verse 8 states, And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
point out something about the word gift here. We all know what that means in the 21st century, but what about the first? Well, in the Greek, the word here that's used is doron, which while yes is a present, it is inflected and known to anyone who spoke Greek in those days that it is a gift given out of a sacrifice. That is a huge word, sacrifice. Something that you have to give up. It's not something that you have a bunch of lying around. God's gift to you, while freely given, was given through the sacrifice of his one singular and only son, Jesus, who was scourged, tortured, humiliated, spat on, mocked, beaten, and then hung on a cross and left there, mostly naked, in the sun, for six hours. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine it? Can you imagine suffering, thirsting, sweating, and suffocating for six hours? All the while people yell at you and continue to humiliate you? Would you be able to have the grace to forgive the people who did that to you? Because Jesus did. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them. Jesus had already suffered for a long time before his six hours on the cross even began. And yet he still forgives. When you ate of his flesh and drank of his blood today, he was yet again reminding you of the gift of his grace, the gift of peace, love, forgiveness, and eternal, everlasting life. God knows there's no way for any of us to do what Jesus did. None of us could have gone through what Jesus did and not only stayed convicted to it, but stayed so pure and of heart and loving of spirit to endure all of it. Somewhere in there, Somewhere in that suffering, every last one of us would have broken. Our hearts would have soured to the world, or our words would have condemned those who tortured us. So God, in his perfect design for us, sent his son, his own flesh and blood, to tell us all of his grace, his majesty, and his love because he knew that all of us are too broken to do it ourselves. That is why it's a gift. That is why when we look at the whole of verse 8 and finish with verse 9, we see how Paul keeps writing God's word and reminds us that God gave us that gift of grace for a reason. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of this was because of ourselves. It is all because of God. Every good deed we do in this world, we, let it, we later negate through sin. We'll do it either through conscious action or subconscious thought. That's why we need God. After all, if we were able to get to heaven through our own deeds, whether it was fully or partially because of it, then the gift of grace would mean nothing to us. 
we would boast about how our good works got us up into heaven because we're such great people. But my brothers, my sisters, we would be saying those things even if our works only accounted for 1% of our salvation. And God knows that, which is for why for our salvation, his grace is 100% of it. It's all 0% luck, 0% skill, 0% concentrated power of will, 0% pleasure and 0% pain, but 100% reason to remember his grace. Y'all, God ain't done with us yet, though. You see, he knows us. He knows that we need to feel purpose in this world. That's why you see so many people who are still slaves to their sins, trying to find that purpose in the deeds that they do, the way they conduct themselves, the amount of money in their bank accounts, or in what they leave behind in this world. In fact, in the musical Alexander Hamilton, we can see just how hard people work to leave behind something. Hamilton says the line, legacy. What is a legacy? A legacy is planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. So God is putting us to work to see the greatest legacy of them all. And not only to see it, to be a part of it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul gives us the best wrap-up to what God is inspiring him to write in this section. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a legacy, and it is a garden that we actually do get to see. God put us here on earth in order to see the seeds of his garden. Not only are we the workers in the field, but we're part of that field itself. God planted us here, spread his seeds, and when the time was right, he harvested us and then sent us out to harvest more for him. For not only are we the perfect fruit of the harvest, we're also the perfect workers for that harvest. And we're equipped with the perfect tools to help harvest more for the kingdom of God. It doesn't even matter if your path in Christ has lasted your whole life or five seconds. God can and will use you. We should never let ourselves be classified by our experience level. It is our willingness to be a worker of the harvest that should drive us forward on the path of great works that God, through Christ Jesus, prepared for us. Those works will be good, and they will lead further into a beautiful life that God has ready for us. All it takes is one step. No matter how scared or nervous you may be, God is there. And God knows that the good works you do will be bountiful and fruitful. In his perfect design, he did not send us on a path that we're not prepared for. He sent us on a path that would leave us and others fulfilled and not wanting. It's there in Luke 22, chapter, uh, verse 35. As Jesus is talking to his disciples and reminding them of when he sent them out. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Listen to that again. They said the word nothing. The disciples were sent out with no belongings, 
not even a sack to keep food or water in, no money in which to purchase sustenance or shelter for a night, not even sandals to keep their feet from being cut open on the rocks and hard ground that they would be walking on. And yet they lacked nothing. And in this life that God created for us, and with the gift of his eternal life, we too will lack for nothing because his love is good. And then when we arrive up in heaven, we will continue to see the legacy of God in action. Those who help to harvest us will be there, waiting with Jesus to welcome us into the kingdom. Then those around us who were part of the harvest while we were on earth, we will see and be in brotherhood with them in God's wonderful kingdom. Then the next wave of the harvest will come in, and we will rejoice with our brothers who welcomed those that were harvested in their time, and so on and so forth for all eternity. This is the legacy we should all be working towards. God doesn't want us to look at what we're leaving behind in this world. He wants us to look ahead to the great gift of life he has given us. It's why he wants us to accept the gift of eternal life. I want you all to ask yourself, what is your foundation? Are you basing your foundation on fear, good deeds, or even worse, is your foundation laid in an identity that is based on sin? Why is it not in the one place where it should be? God's grace. If it isn't in God's grace, what is keeping you from taking that step over to the most stable foundation of them all and into everlasting life? I want to be real for just a second here. Last week, we got to hear Todd and Mike's testimonies. Neither of them knew what I was preaching on today, and yet both of them talked about how important God's grace was in their life. When I came here to Crosswinds, I had no intention of staying. Honestly, I didn't even think that my journey in faith would yield anything. And yet, here I am right now, today, I didn't want to think, to even look at God. I literally felt so broken and so ashamed of who I was that I didn't want God, God to see who I had become. And yet God was there reaching out for me, telling me, yes, you're broken. Yes, I know who you are. And yes, I do forgive you and you are beautiful. And honestly, that was the most amazing moment of my life. My mom is here in this room right now. Ask her two years ago if she thought I would be right here, up here, talking like this. She's shaking her head no right now. There's no way she thought that would happen two years ago. That is how big God's grace is, that he can truly change hearts and change lives. I want everyone just to close their eyes for a minute. And I want to invite the band up here really quick. But more importantly, I want to invite anyone who wants to reaffirm their life in Christ to just raise their hand right now to tell him, yes, 
I believe. If you're online, give us an amen or a hallelujah or something in the chat to let us know. And if you haven't accepted God into your life yet, and you're willing to do that right now, if you're willing to let your heart say, I believe, then raise your hand too. Join with those who are reaffirming their life to Christ right now. If you're in chat, if you're online, say in the chat, I believe in Christ. And I just want to pray with us right now. Lord, thank you so much for the words that you gave me. Thank you so much for this wonderful time to be in your word. Thank you for those who have reaffirmed their life. Thank you to those who are giving their life today to Christ, who want to be with you and in your love and in your kingdom for all eternity. For those who want to escape death and slavery and finally have the life that everyone deserves. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for showing us who you are. Amen. If you want to pray today, if you want, if you are one of those who wanted to accept Christ, I'll be over on the side. Come pray with me. I'm going to lead it off with Neil and Jennifer here to lead us in our reflection.